Good afternoon, and welcome to Power for the People here on Solar Power WERU-FM, 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and everywhere in our solar system at WERU.org. I'm your host, Steve Kahl. The goal of Power for the People is to help you understand the increasingly complex energy future. It does seem to be in getting more complex day by day. So including energy policies, technology, and solutions in our state and for your life. And the goal, of course, is to help you reduce your energy costs and uh, get the feel-good pleasure of reducing your, your impact on the environment and climate, if you don't mind me saying so. So my guest today is energy expert Ken Colburn of Bar Harbor, who I will introduce in just a moment. But as I tend to do here, our first a, fir- a few news headlines and that are relevant to your energy future that have come up in the last few weeks. So first of all, uh, the listeners probably are aware of the article in the Bangor Daily News on the Eastern Maine Electric Co-op, which serves something like 15,000 people in uh, down East Maine. And uh, while the rest of us are paying 18 or cents or more per kilowatt hour, the rate there is five cents a kilowatt hour. And uh, that is relevant to the proposed consumer-owned utility and uh, compared to foreign utilities that are controlling our grid. Um, So we will talk on this program, and actually have talked on this program, about uh, the option for Pine Tree Power Company, because that is something that we will apparently all vote on come November. We just went through a pretty tough uh, cold snap, uh, one of the, the coldest in recent years. Uh, And uh, one of the issues that I've also seen uh, written up in various media outlets is heat pump performance. Uh, As listeners know, I have two at my house uh, in my entirely electrically uh, uh, heated house. Uh, And those heat pumps continue to produce warm air uh, even uh, into the evening on those those cold days. I mean, I set my heat pumps up a little bit during the daytime. And yes, my, my temperature in my house dropped a little bit overnight, but I was in bed. And frankly, didn't really mind. And uh, bottom line is, uh, I felt that they worked fine, and lots of other people have have uh, reported the same thing. And I just saw in the governor's climate, sorry, uh, budget talk last night that uh, there's 82,000 heat pumps installed in Maine, and uh, they make just an awful lot of sense. You you may have also seen in the media that the fossil fuel interests have a campaign to discredit heat pumps. Um, unfortunately, uh, so uh, you know, take the information. Uh, and use it as you wish, I guess, is the, is the right answer. And then finally, there was a, an article about uh, EVs. And actually, we've seen this for a while now, but there was one that just came across my line this week uh, that electric vehicles can power your home for three to five days if you have the uh, right setup to do it. And uh, that's something in, the, in this era of increasingly unreliable grid, especially in Maine, where central Maine power is listed as the worst in the country. Uh, that uh, another uh, perhaps unexpected reason why an electric vehicle might make sense for you. So just some items out there uh, that I just want to call your attention to. So today, my guest is Ken Colburn from Bar Harbor. He's the principal of Symbiotic Strategies Consulting, LLC. Uh, And I happen to like the, uh, the quote on his website, and so I'm actually going to read it. It says, consulting at the intersection of economic and environmental opportunity. What a great term thought is that opportunity, focusing on climate change, power sector transformation, beneficial electrification, regulation, and public policy. And that kind of summarizes in, in a, a grand way a, a lot of the, the purpose for this, uh, this program. 
Ken is the former director of the New Hampshire Air Resources Board in the Department of Environmental Services, which is where we first met when I was working over at Plymouth State University. He's the former executive director of NESCOM, if you happen to know that acronym, Northeast States for Coordinated Air Use Management, uh, clearly uh, energy related. And he currently serves on a number of boards, uh, Efficiency Maine. People appear on this program from time to time. You are the secretary, is that correct, Ken? That's, that's correct, Steve, correct. thanks. Secretary of the Efficiency Maine Trust. Also on the Earthworks Board, Clean Energy Works, uh, Climate to Thrive, uh, which has been covered on this program, and we need to cover it again soon because they haven't been on for a while. Uh, and Ken also served on the Maine Climate Council and still serves on the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association Board, uh, which sounds rather relevant to the state of Maine, doesn't it? So welcome, Ken, so much. Welcome to Power for the People. Good to see you. Uh, good to hear you, as it were, since this is the radio. Uh, anything else you'd like to add about your background that's uh, relevant to where we're going to be going here? Uh, perhaps just a little bit, Steve. I'm uh, largely retired for the last two years, but symbiotic strategies still allows me to keep a hand in uh, here and there. Um, you know, I, I talk about being a retired energy geek, but I can't really claim to uh, no longer be a geek. So. I, I guess I'm still an energy geek, even if I'm not working as as uh, avidly as I used to be. I would add uh, the the final role before I I did uh, step back a bit was at the Regulatory Assistance Project, headquartered in Montpelier, Montpelier Vermont, but actually active uh, not only across the country but across the world. Uh, my responsibility though was managing the U.S. program, and we were a group of former regulators advising current regulators about. Uh, challenges that they're facing as regulators and indeed that power sector transmission uh, uh, transformation. Um, uh, I would uh, draw the analogy to what has happened in telephony where we all had a central station and a, a wired telephone. And now none of us have that. We have these little devices we carry that exceed uh, the capabilities of our imagination often. We uh, were wired to central data processing departments um, with our computer terminals, and lo and behold, uh, that decentralization has occurred uh, with our laptops that can go anywhere. And I think we're headed in a very similar technology decentralization for the power sector with rooftop solar, with storage, with EVs, um, and the ability to network those together in a similarly constructive way. So that transformation is uh, already well underway. It's just not clear that our regulatory system has uh, understood and figured out what to do about it yet. Uh, two other quick things, Steve, uh, uh, I would uh, include myself in your category of uh, uh, photovoltaic driven heat pumps as your primary heating source and a similarly positive experience, both comfort wise and cost wise um, that, that I've had and uh, pleased to, to have had that experience in, here in Maine. And then finally, just a little caveat, um, as you said, I'm on several boards and I just want to make your audience aware that uh, my comments today, of course, are just mine and not reflective of my role in, in any other or for any other uh, entity. So thanks very much for having me. Well, I, I appreciate uh, having you on and uh, it's, I've been uh, remiss in not getting you on sooner just because of the you know, broad base of knowledge that you uh, bring to the table. Uh, and I did notice the, uh, what does RAP stand for? The Regulatory Assistance Project. Right. And that was something that I, I saw on your CV. And I frankly, I'd never heard of it 
And so I didn't dare mention it. So thank you for clarifying that. And, uh, and your comment about uh, change happening, uh, you know, your comment about cell phones and, uh, and, and hardwired phones and things like that, humans and therefore society are resistant to change. Uh, and that is one of our challenges in terms of dealing with the energy transition and climate change issues and things like that. But we do have to remember, picking up on the, the examples you used, that uh, cell phones have come along in a dozen years or something like that and, and changed everything about the way we communicate. And so it it uh, is possible. And frankly, I think when you think about heat pumps, I mean, heat pumps have, uh, have only, cold climate heat pumps have only been around for a decade or so. Uh, and we've got 82,000 of them in the, in the state of Maine. So it is feasible uh, to make the changes that we're talking about. Uh, I'm always amused by a quote that is attributed to Winston Churchill, although I don't know that it really was. And that is that Americans always do the right thing once they've tried every other alternative. And uh, let's hope that we've gotten past some of the other alternatives and uh, we can go out and do the right thing. So, Ken, I, you mentioned electrical, uh, beneficial electrification a few minutes ago, and I saw it on your on your uh, resume that, in fact, you'd actually published on it almost a decade ago, uh, way before anybody else was was talking about it. And, and I don't even think it's that phrase is necessarily uh, in the vernacular today with most people. Um, and, and, you know, when you published on that back in 2016, that was practically the Precambrian relative to uh, energy <laughs> policy. Um, shall we start there? Tell us what uh, your your perspective on the practical and economic and, and energy related values of, elect of beneficial electrification. Oh, thanks, Steve. That's that's kind of you. Uh, beneficial electrification is actually uh, kind of a high point in my career, or at least uh, one of a couple of them. Um, I came across a paper um, through the National Co-ops Organization (NRECA) that a, a young staffer had written there. And it, it coined that term, albeit in the context of a, a highly technical Department of Energy oriented uh, metric that they use to measure energy efficiency. And uh, because I knew who this person was and was able to contact him, I, I did so and said, we could take this idea so much further, especially because of the coming need for greater electrification to decarbonize our society in response to climate change. And he was amenable to that. And so uh, I and another individual, Jim Lazar, uh, with me at the Regulatory Assistance uh, Project, uh, uh, one of the best rate design economists in the world, uh, got together and wrote a paper entitled uh, Beneficial Electrification, the, the Dawn of Efficiency. Um, and, and, and that paper sort of put the case forward for beneficial electrification as a response technologically into the transformation and to address climate. And we were pleased that uh, it was so well received that it was the number one downloaded paper from Electricity Policy, the journal Electricity Policy, uh, for almost a year, uh, which is pretty, pretty unheard of. Um, the terms of beneficial electrification were really, we fought to keep that, that name, if you will, because um, many utilities thought electrification itself was beneficial. They would grow load, they would do better because of it, they'd sell more kilowatt hours, what's not to like? Um, but we insisted that it also come with environmental benefit and greater ability to operate the grid effectively. 
So more opportunity to turn devices on and off and to use storage and to otherwise decarbonize instead of burning coal and oil and natural gas in power plants. And so it, beneficial electrification had to bring with it those characteristics as well, not just additional kilowatt hour sales. And as you point out, Steve, I, I think uh, that name has managed to stick. And I'm, I'm one of the most delightful things that I've been able to work on is, uh, is that success story. Well, and as you point out, I mean, in the early days of uh, using that term, perhaps it was the utilities who said, yeah, obviously it's going to be beneficial to us. But, uh, you know, kind of summarizing things that we've talked about on this radio show for, for years, uh, beneficial electrification for consumers, for you out there listening, means that you can save money. I mean, uh, I've talked a little bit about how much money I'm saving here at, uh, at my house that's fully electric. Uh, it works. It keeps you comfortable. It doesn't cause your lifestyle to be upended and, and, and change. And that's, you know, that's important. Uh, it helps the environment. Uh, and it means that in the best case scenario, especially when we go to distributed renewals, we're not sending $5 billion of main money out to foreign, uh, to other states or to other countries. So the the opportunities here are uh, the advantages for beneficial electrification are huge. And I, I might add, the more we go to distributed renewable energy, the less likely it is we're going to lose the whole grid or the less likely that it is that a terrorist attack can take out the grid um, because it's distributed and you can't, you know, there's no way a terrorist can can take solar panels off of everybody's house. So uh, there's all sorts of, of, of consumer related uh benefits that uh, that make a lot of sense but yeah, the but price interestingly the price is go ahead sorry ken you hit the nail on the head you know we have a community hospital we have a community police department we have a community education system and why is that because of the network of communities um that makes that more effective and more personal and more reliable more resilient and right. it's time to do something quite similar with our energy system right. as your experience and mine demonstrates and, and so the, the part of the issue, of course, is that uh, may might slow some people down to thinking that electrification is going to be beneficial for them is the current pricing issue. Uh, and so can you give us some some introductory, uh, I mean, let, we'll call it Energy 101 maybe, on how how the price is set for electricity in, in Maine? And, and you might talk about consumer-owned utilities as well as the, the big utilities. And the role of ISO New England, the regional grid uh, operator or, or coordinator, uh, can you give us some some uh, background on that? Sure, glad to offer a couple of thoughts on that, Steve. Um, the the issue of pricing is, you know, everybody's concerned when the prices go up, and understandably so from an affordability standpoint. Uh, the important thing to understand in the electricity sector is that pricing for power is a really dynamic. Uh, uh, situation. Uh, in the middle of the night, power might be available for your utility to buy and then transmit and distribute to your house at something like two cents uh, per kilowatt hour. Um, during the day, though, it might get to 20 cents a kilowatt hour. And at the peak times, you know, when we're having a heat wave or a really bad cold snap and everybody has either their air conditioners or their heaters or heat pumps operating, um, it can go to $2 a kilowatt hour. Uh, now, of course, you never see that because 
the utility lumps all that together, averages it, and sends you out a rate as though it were the same price all day long. And that's the 18 or so cents that you mentioned earlier, Steve. But in fact, you can reduce costs and utilities can reduce costs by managing the demand and by using more efficient equipment, some of which you, you have already mentioned, uh, EVs, uh, uh, heat pumps, obviously insulation, LED light bulbs, and so forth. Um, now, interesting, with those price swings, uh, what happens at the ISO level, the independent system operator of New England, which includes uh, all of the, the uh, six Northeast states, uh, New York has its own power grid, and then there's what's called PJM, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland, which is much of the eastern heartland of the country, large grids managing that. Um, they uh, do what's called uh, market clearing prices from generators uh, to provide the power necessary for that whole regional grid. Uh, that That is uh, essentially what's called a pricing stack. So you'd bid in that uh, I'll sell it to you for a penny kilowatt hour. Um, I'd bid in at two cents. Um, the, the amount of energy that they needed uh, might be at a penny and a half. Um, so you and I would both get a penny and a half. Uh, you would get more than you actually asked for. Well, yes, that's true. And everybody would get that amount. Everybody in the stack below the clearing price of a penny and a half or 20 cents in the, in the, in the uh, busier times of day or $2. Everyone gets $2. This is why the costs went so high in that Texas February 2021 uh, cold snap that they had $9,000. Uh, amazing. A megawatt hour. So $9 a kilowatt hour. Everyone gets that price that's providing power. That's what's called a market clearing price. Um, that sounds odd. Why did we pay you a penny and a half when you only asked for a penny? Well, that's to prevent people from gaming the system and trying to wait till the last bit so they can get the most money. Um, then the, the grid operator would have trouble assembling the amount of power it needs to keep everybody's lights on. So it, it's a useful way of approaching it, but it's also an expensive way of approaching it. And the ISO New England also has some shortcomings in that it was one of the early regional grid operators to be formed. And it was formed on the ownership of existing utilities. So it still carries with it the profit motive, the sense of utility ownership and entitlement, as opposed to the service of the public good. And it's not the least bit uncommon for the uh, ISO New England to be saying that they need more gas plants so that they can do what they want when they want. Um, well, that that's nice if you have that perspective alone, but if you're concerned about cost or concerned about climate, uh, neither of those things is particularly factored into uh, ISO New England's interests, uh, let alone things like efficiency. So ISO New England is uh, sort of an unfortunate artifact that we are uh, that we have at this point. There is utility, there is benefit in a regional approach, uh, but frankly, it has to be something with a, a little different mission and orientation than I think we're well served by today by ISO New England. Uh, a final thought on pricing, Steve, is just about that natural gas. Uh, 
natural gas in most of the country um, has a, a large heating load. Uh, most of the homes across the country are heated with piped in natural gas, not even propane. Uh, Maine is the exception to that as the number one state that uses heating oil, uh, which is far more dirty from a, a carbon perspective. So it'd be nice to get natural gas, um, but now we have better options, as you said, the heat pumps and, and other uh, electric options. So we should go building natural gas infrastructure at this point because it too emits carbon. Um, it has some other health impacts that are, that's dangerous. But the most important thing from a pricing standpoint right now is that heating load across the country. Natural gas isn't used as much in the summer, so its price goes down. It's pretty much only used by electric power plants and by manufacturers, manufacturers of plastics and so forth. But in the winter, it's used by a whole lot of people heating their homes and the price goes up. And so that's why we have seen the cyclicality of high prices in the winter and then lower prices in the summer. And we can look forward to that plaguing us going forward uh, until um, we successfully shift to those 100,000 heat pumps or more uh, across the state. Right, well, and there's there's 400,000 homes, not to count retail uh, and, and industry operations. So 100,000 is a great target. Um, and we're gonna get there before 2025, but we need to exceed that uh, in the uh, foreseeable future as well. So Steve, you're right. I, I had an occasion once to talk with a school superintendent and we debated and I said this the system is is nowhere near good enough to meet the demands of the future. And he would say it's the best it's ever been. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we are in our main climate and energy policy. We are one of the leading states in that direction, uh, but we're nowhere near at scale that we need to be to address uh, climate issues. All right. So, so uh, the Acadia Center put out a report a year or so ago uh, that you're probably familiar with saying that, that ISO New England, um, and again, to use your term, I think your term was an artifact of uh, how it was put together, that ISO New England was responsible, um, had their perspective on, as you said, let's build more natural gas plants because we can turn them on and off quickly, it was responsible for partly our pricing and partly uh, an impediment to getting us to better carbon goals. Uh, can you expand on the, on your previous comments and that idea a little bit more? Yes. Um, perhaps I should step back, Steve, and feel free to bring me back to that question if need be. But um, for the last hundred years, uh, the electricity grid has been managed using the supply side. The, the utilities have understandably said, uh, what is the existing demand for electricity, or otherwise known in the trade as load? So what's, what's my current load? And uh, I'm going to adjust the knob on the power plant, turn it up or down, uh, the supply of energy uh, to meet that load. And as load goes up uh, in the course of the day, you know, people go to work, go to their jobs, they run their computers, they run their plants. Um, that, that involves more electricity than was used overnight. So the utility turns the knob up on the power plant. And um, when they come home, they all turn on the microwave and put in the laundry and open the fridge and watch the television. So that's a peak time of day. So they really have to turn up the power plant. And then things settle down overnight, less energy, turn down the power plant until the next morning. Managing with the supply side. 
Well, the trouble is, as we electrify in order to decarbonize our society, as we electrify transportation and more and more people enjoy the benefits of electric vehicles and more and more people have heat pumps and more and more people uh, use other electricity oriented devices that improve their quality of life and comfort and um, are more controllable, you know, plants love electric equipment because it's more controllable than combustion equipment. They can be more precise in their manufacturing. Well, that's going to increase our load. Some people have estimated as much as four or five times. Now, does that mean that we need to build four or five times the grid that we have now? That's a huge cost. It's probably measured in trillions and probably just for the state. Uh, at least multiple billions. Well, fortunately, our current grid is only used about to half its capacity because it was built to serve those peaks. And if we could flatten out the peaks by managing demand, we could get about twice as much power in the grid than we have today. So we wouldn't have to build that first doubling. We may have to build after that uh, to provide more electricity for the things that we're then doing. The take-home message then is for the next 100 years, we'll be managing the system based on demand side. We will say, no, don't charge your EV now. I need that for your microwave and your, and your laundry and your refrigerator. You can charge your EV uh, at 2 a.m. And I'm sure that you know, I'll guarantee that you'll have enough power to get to work in the morning and get home. Uh, and that will all be done with algorithm, algorithms and you know, a sight unseen, the consumer will specify how he or she wants it done, and we'll be able to override in special circumstances when they have a doctor's appointment coming up or plan a vacation trip or whatever. But for the future, we'll be managing the demand side. Um, that will be something that ISO New England is not the least bit used to, capable of, or understanding the need for. Um, a start of that is first, let's use energy efficiently. Um, but ISO New England has been reluctant to allow efficiency as a strategy for meeting current load. So it'll say, I want to turn up the knob on the power plant. I don't know if I can trust you guys to actually deliver efficiency or not. So I'm not going to count that. Now, they have started to do so. And to their credit, ISO New England is better than most of those other national, you know, re, uh, across the country, large regional grid operators. Um, they're better. They're just not anywhere near, near the demands of the future where we'll be running the grid based on the load side, the demand side, the ability to turn on devices on and off. Um, we won't have to sit at our computer to run our lights uh, any more than we do now uh, with our phones or computers. Uh, so things will be fine, but it is a major change, a major decentralization and a lot of aggregation. And one more reason to move in the direction you described, Steve, of communities pooling their EVs and pooling their heat pump loads and pooling their photovoltaics to meet those loads and pooling storage, whether it's in EVs or in um, Tesla power walls in their garages, um, okay, now, is that enough power for our community or do we need to also bring some in from the grid? The, those are the kinds of decisions what, that communities will be looking at in the future and happily so because it'll be 
far less carbon emitted in getting to that point than there is today. All right, so so, so well said. A number of follow-ups there, but first let me just remind people that you are listening to Power for the People here on WERU-FM, 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor. And my guest today is Ken Colburn, who's a principal in Symbiotic Strategies, an energy consulting, uh, an energy consultant in Bar Harbor, and obviously based on the first half of this program, you can tell uh, very knowledgeable about these things. So uh, I've got several things I wanted to pick up on there, but uh, maybe the the simplest one, the most straightforward one, is to come back to to ask the specific question: How does natural gas pricing within the ISO New England market wind up controlling our electrical costs? And and the and the, the follow up to that, just to, to so you know where I'm going, is the governor's statement last night that she is directing the energy office to get us to 100% renewables by 2040, which is faster than the original plan. Uh, at what point? Are we going to move away from natural gas pricing, setting Maine's electrical rates? Well, um, that's a, a wonderful question, Steve. And I, I would say that the uh, the race is on. Um, natural gas at this point is what's called the marginal fuel. When ISO New England, which is the gatherer of all the power that's necessary uh, to meet New England load, um, looks to see uh you know builds that stack or solicits those bid, bids on an hour by hour basis uh it'll say okay hydro dams what do you got for me and at what cost and it'll say solar for this hour of the day what are you providing and you win guys what can you give me okay um, those will all be fairly cheap because there's no fuel costs associated with wind and no fuel costs associated with solar and hydro is pretty low cost as well and then they'll say, yeah, but I still need some more to meet that evening demand. Um, what do I got? And nobody answers the phone except the natural gas people. Now, remember, they'll come in at a higher bid because they do have to pay for fuel. And everybody gets that bid price, as we talked about market clearing prices earlier. So the solar guys will do well, and the wind guys will do well, and the hydro guys will do well, and the gas guys will make enough money to, to stay in business. That's how gas determines the price for everyone all of the time that gas is the marginal fuel, which is most of the time in New England, especially in winter because of the heating loads. Um, so that, that's how gas gets to control. Now, you notice I said we the, the ISO or anybody else trying to buy power will look to the renewables first because they're so low cost. So the obvious solution then is let's get more renewables in here. And so that means building more solar, building more wind on and offshore, and using, because those are intermittent uh, variable resources, they don't happen all the time. There's a lot of happy offset. You know, wind doesn't blow as much during the day as it does at night, so that can offset solar, which provides energy in the day, but not none at any at night, of course. Um, but we'll still have some shortcomings uh, where we need more power. Well, fortunately, solar, I'm sorry, uh, storage is on the same track as solar and wind. And, you know, the answer now for storage is, yeah, but it's so expensive. Well, that was what everybody said about solar 20 years ago. And the price has dropped to ridiculous levels and the performance has increased incredibly. Um, probably like you, Steve, I, I installed solar panels on my roof in 2014, 
and they were uh, of a size of 255 watts. Now, most panels that you would install in the house, if I were doing it today, those panels would be 415 watts. So they're they're getting close to double, and they're about the same price. <laughs> you know, incredible. And I did another solar installation, and everybody else's uh, experience is similar. The cost for the same amount declines. Well, the same has been true for wind. It's on that declining cost curve. And now happily, the same thing is happening with storage and storage is getting cheaper and cheaper. So it will take on a bigger and bigger role in the management of our grid uh, so that we'll have renewable solar, renewable uh, wind, some hydro in there as exists and storage to buttress all of that. And what I interpret the governor's uh, goal to mean is uh, get all of that done on a grand enough scale so that it can provide all of Maine's power uh, without burning any fossil fuels. I should hasten to add, Steve, there are, are other uh, energy sources as well. One that Maine is particularly uh, well-suited for would be tidal power, where think of putting a fan, a generator underneath the, uh, the, the tidal zone and uh, the tides coming in would turn that fan and generate power and the water going back out would turn that fan and could generate power. There's some technologies associated with that, of course, but they're being worked on today with uh, what, what I interpret to be a, a pretty good success rate, albeit at pilot scale. So I think we can look forward to tidal power as well. And uh, Ocean Renewable Power in Portland, Maine, is the headquarters for uh, the, I think, a company that is in the forefront of dealing with tidal power. And uh, I, I've uh, proposed for years that remembering that uh, having, you know, if we have one gigantic central power plant in the state of Maine uh, serving the whole state, think of the wires we would need and the line losses we would need. Why don't we have, uh, you know, tidal power? Uh, supplying the energy needs for peninsulas and islands in the state of Maine, uh, to, in, in, which is a version of distributed power in itself, which is just more efficient relative to line losses and those sorts of things. So Absolutely. And when you think of the volume of water going up the Penobscot and down daily or up to Damascata and down daily, uh, water holds so much more energy than wind does that uh, it's almost a no-brainer that we should seek that energy source. Well, so one of my questions that relates to ISO New England, and and, and again, you've you've highlighted the issue that why they uh, for now are focusing on on turning up or turning down natural gas plants relative to the other the other options, wind and solar and tidal are weather or tide based and are predictable. Mm -hmm. Do, do they factor the predictability of those renewable sources into their contracting or can they, have they not gotten to that point? Um, I am actually not certain of that um, because I'm not at the purchasing end of uh, ISO New England. Um, I have to believe that they factor that predictability greatly. And through analytics, you know, the, all of the, the big data types of work that has been done recently, uh, and artificial intelligence, the predictability of solar and wind is actually quite good now. Um, you know, one doesn't need to know four days ahead. One only needs to know one hour ahead. Mm. And what do you know about wind? Well, you may not know anything, but you know what it did an hour west of you an hour ago. <laughs> 
So you have a pretty good clue what it's going to do to you uh, in the upcoming hour. So it's highly predictable and, and on a scale that uh, very that uh, uh, dispatchable resources like gas plants can be tuned to respond to. And that the reason for that, of course, is keeping down the carbon emissions. You know, the, the gas plant still has the emissions and those emissions are still not paid for. You know, why is gas not cost more? Because you're paying for the climate change as it happens in culvert replacements and in beach erosion and in homeless erosions, rather than the burner of the natural gas or the oil or the gasoline paying for that in the course of paying for that product. Um, that's an unfortunate part. Anyway, the predictability of, of those resources, Steve, due to analytics, due to big data, has gotten quite good and can now be factored in. Um, I assume that ISO New England is um, probably doing that as well as anyone and probably, again, nowhere near as well as they should be. All right. And as you say, I mean, you can you can predict wind and sun, uh, you know, on an hour by hour basis. Uh, and tidal is even better than that. Tidal's you know, far so better. There's yep. lots of opportunities there. So um, I was related to contracting. I was on a field trip tour a number of years ago to a new wind uh, site uh, in Downey's Maine. We were actually on a bus. It was part of a conference and there were there were 30 people on the bus that were, had been in the conference. Uh, and uh, the, the guide on the tour was a representative of the owner and I'll refrain from using the company name. Uh, and he said uh, something that absolutely made everybody's draw drop. He said, when the wind blows here, ISO New England shuts down hydro. It doesn't shut down natural gas. Are we still in that scenario where where they're playing renewables off each other in order to be to, to run natural gas plants? Uh, well, again, Steve, that goes to ISO New England's day to day operations. Um, but they undoubtedly are they should be cutting the resource that is the most expensive. Um, but again, since they were at a market clearing price and they're all the same price paid. Um, they may not be. Hmm. There may be other reasons. Um, congestion in transmission lines, a longer transmission path, uh, transmission that's owned by them rather than owned by, say, Hydro-Quebec or, or New York Power Pool. Uh, so there are a lot of economic interests that bear on decisions other than just gas plant versus uh, uh, renewable hydro. Hmm. And they may well be selecting their gas plant on their lines. Uh, they don't own the gas plant, of course, but um, the gas plant that's in their area versus a, a a hydro facility that's outside their area. Right. And of course, I don't know that that's still true, but it was uh, it was something that, uh, again, made everybody's draw, jaw drop. So when the governor proposes... Uh, and I'll put you on the spot here, and I don't know that the question is even answerable, but when the governor proposes a 100% renewable grid by 2040, uh, can we set our own price at that point, regardless of, of natural gas? Uh, we, we should be able to. Uh, I don't see why not. When, when we are at 100% renewables, or which is to say, when we are at the ability to run Maine's grid based on Maine's solar and Maine's wind and Maine's hydro 
and Maine's title, then all of those are fuel-free resources. And the only cost that should be associated with that is the cost of making sure they all line up and meet what is the demand for electricity at the time and the ability to get that electricity from point A to point B. And that's through large towers called transmission lines that carry a lot of power over long distances and distributed systems, distribution systems, which are the ones that you see in your neighborhood, poles, transformers on them, drops down to your house. Um, the ISO is only concerned with transmission and the purchase of the power itself, but uh, we should be able to, uh, to have our own price when that's the case. Now, I hasten to add that as long as we're part of ISO New England, we'll be paying ISO New England's prices. And if, uh, you know, Connecticut doesn't move as rapidly to renewables and it still has gas generation and we're still part of ISO New England, ISO New England takes everything that was generated in its area, everything it transmitted and divvies that up among the states and we would be paying a higher price because some other states didn't move as rapid. So we need to work on that. And that's a regulatory construct. Uh, being in or out of ISO New England is a very significant decision, and we wouldn't want to approach that lightly. Uh, we want, would want to make sure that we in, are entirely capable of managing our grid ourselves uh, before we would take that step. But put it this way, Steve, uh, ISO New England's regional costs have been the most rapidly increasing part of our electric bill in the last uh, eight or 10 years. Mm. So they're enjoying this circumstance um, and they, they pay quite well. And uh, uh, we, we could pursue significant savings by the direction you're describing. Right. Not but, but, but it does sound like uh, if we got to 100% renewable, we would either have to be, do what Texas does and become an, a grid unto ourselves without interconnectedness that has come back to bite Texas several times uh, or create our own. Well, I guess that would be uh, or, or New England would have to go to 100% renewable New England wide, which is going to be a tall order. That's that's correct. Um, the latter would would mean that ISO New England is the same as Maine throughout the whole New England region, hmm. and that would work. Uh, in Texas's case, though, um, there there are two elements of that. One is you're correct. That would be not a good idea to stand alone because there is benefit in numbers. There is benefit in you know it, the wind might be blowing uh, in Vermont and not in Maine at at the moment. So if we were yoked to the northern New England states, that, that could benefit us. But the Texas analogy is a bad one in several respects. Uh, Texas doesn't have anywhere near adequate building codes. So, you know, Texas often runs its pipes. How, homeowners in Texas often run their pipes outdoors. Nobody in Maine would run their water pipes outdoors. Mm. Uh, homes in Texas often use little or no insulation. <laughs> Nobody in Maine wouldn't use any insulation. So Texas's energy problems are mostly a function of an exceedingly poor job on the demand side. You know, an exceedingly poor job with energy efficiency. And 
you know, when when you don't do a good job with efficiency and things turn cold, then you don't have any insulation and things are going to be bad. You're going to have to use a lot of power. That's what happened. Mm. And, and compressor stations freeze up and gas isn't available and you're in real trouble and people die. And that's what happened. Well, was Texas, entirely Texas politically is an anti-regulation state. And, uh, you know, government has some roles here that uh, do do matter and do help people. Markets are wonderful things, but they need playing fields, playing right. fields and, and books of rules about how the game is played. And within those rule books, they do extraordinary things for society. But without those rule books, they do things like carbon emissions and child labor and poor quality and caveat emptor. You know? yep. Yeah, well, Republican Teddy Roosevelt was all about, uh, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, the anti-big big establishment. Uh, and that's... Uh, there's a lot to be said for that. So uh, we've we've hinted at the, the concept of interconnectedness a little bit here. Uh, and actually, let me just uh, hang on one second. We're down to uh, a little over 10 minutes. So let me just remind everybody that you're listening to Power for the People here on WERU-FM. And uh, my guest today is energy expert Ken Colburn from Mount Desert Island, who is the principal of Symbiotic Strategies Energy Consulting uh, here uh, in, the, in the Northeast, I guess I should say. Uh, so, so interconnectedness. Um, can we can we use that to pivot to a, a closing conversation about community solar, perhaps? Oh, certainly. I'd love to chat about community solar, Steve. It's a an area near and dear to my heart. Um, I'm actually a member of the Bar Harbor Community Solar Farm, and um, it is what I like to call a true community solar farm. Uh, that is to say. There is no manager or uh, proponent or chief executive of this community solar farm. Um, it was done at the time. It was limited uh, by state statute to uh, less than 10 uh, meters connected. So there can only be nine because there's one at the community solar farm itself. So there's only nine members. They're all members. It's a democracy. It's a beneficial corporation. Um, and we meet annually to figure out what we're going to do and how much we need to pay for insurance and maintenance and whatnot. Um, that's uh, sort of what I think of as it should be done. There's another form using the label community solar today where an investor um, comes in and builds a huge array. And we're seeing them pop up all over the state, often taking forest lands or taking worse yet agricultural fields. Um, and they uh, then develop a solar array and sell subscriptions or shares of it to ratepayers. Um, and often that's a, in a subscription sense, that means they can be with the solar community uh, array for a while, but not forever. Um, they don't own it necessarily. Um, and, but most importantly, the benefit they get is about 15% reduction in their electric costs typically. Well, that's good, uh, but where's the other 85% of the savings going? And of course, that's going to the developer. And the developer of these multi-million dollar projects is typically out of state. So once again, the benefits aren't staying entirely in Maine. We are uh, generating electricity with the sun, and not emitting carbon, and that's very positive, and I'm glad it's happening in Maine. But I would also like uh, 
community solar to keep all of its benefits if possible or as much as possible in the state of Maine as our little community solar farm in Bar Harbor did. And I think that model needs to be differentiated from an investor model. Um, fortunately, the PUC is working on some of that size characteristics now, and the legislature did uh, a year or two ago. You may recall that uh, community that that those arrays could be as big as five megawatts, which is it's a good size. Um, and now they limited that, cut it back to two megawatts. Um, a, a normal uh, house array is about ten kilowatts, um, so. Uh, you know, almost a thousand times smaller. Um, and the and how those arrays are interconnected to the grid is currently a big issue facing Maine. Uh, our utilities uh, indicate that they want to move toward Maine's policy directions of more and more renewables, but they also want to have a reliable grid, and a reliable grid in their eyes is the way it has always been, and not the kind of managed from the demand side as we talked about earlier. And so they want to build it bigger and better and hardened and more expensive and uh, don't want anything to ever go wrong. Um, that's pretty important with a, a, a commodity as essential as, as electricity. But you also have to ask ratepayers along the way, what are they willing to pay and how can they connect their system on their roof or in their community solar array um, uh, to begin with. And our utilities have not been good with those interconnections. Uh, they have been flooded with them, no surprise, and they have postponed them or withheld them or said to the homeowner, um, you need to pay for a new transformer before we can hook you up. And that can often uh, add 20 or 30 or 40 percent to the cost of the project and make it untenable. So our utilities, I don't think, are except for verbally, except in their rhetoric, aboard uh, the legislature or the governor's direction of getting to 100 percent renewable energy uh, in in the foreseeable future. That has to change. Now, fortunately, Maine has a pretty good PUC, Public Utilities Commission. Uh, all, all PUCs could be better, more aggressive, more timely, so forth, but they do have a process they need to go through. And Maine's PUC has recognized the interconnection problem that is uh, has been created in the state and has proposed rules, uh, that, that uh, rule modifications to the interconnection rules that should have a great benefit for homeowners and for businesses connecting solar arrays on their house. Uh, noted that wind is also, you know, we think of wind as big, expensive, huge towers, but wind is also starting to downsize. There are some smaller wind options now uh, that are starting to come to market. So you may be able to have a wind uh, generator uh, in your backyard, not just solar generators up on your roof. And interconnecting all those devices and making them all operate together is something that our, our grid needs to do or our community microgrids need to do uh, in order to have reliable power going forward and importantly, to have greater resilience uh, in order to have that power come back quicker, especially on the hospital, especially on the police station and the ambulance uh, uh, garage. Uh, 
uh, as we go forward into more and more extreme events that will be associated with climate change. So, it, it, you know, that's taking it pretty far afield, but that all comes back to how these resources are interconnected, at what cost, how quickly, and our utilities have not been moving rapidly enough or well enough uh, on that front. Um, I, I would hasten to add one more point, Steve, and that is uh, uh, how the solar, and for that matter, wind too, uh, arrays are compensated for the power they generate and send to the grid is also a big issue. That's called net energy billing. And currently it's pretty favorable in Maine. And uh, a lot of folks accuse uh, that of creating cost shifting. I'm not sure that's true. The Maine PUC did a study in 2015 that showed solar power was worth about 30 cents. And I don't think anybody's being paid 30 cents uh, for their electricity or even credited 30 cents. But there are some costs that are associated. You know, I don't use solar power at night. I do use grid power. So I should be paying something to help keep the grid alive and well. And that shouldn't be a penalty. It should be related to the amount of energy I use from the grid. And the grid should pay me fairly for the solar that I generate and send to the grid, which can often be at prime time, not just the two cents in the middle of the night. So there's a whole lot of uh, squaring up that needs to be done on net energy billing I understand the governor's energy office is working on some of that, and I'm sure it'll go before the PUC. Um, there, This is a controversy across the country, not just in Maine. And I have seen probably a hundred bad ways to solve it. And it is solvable, but the right ways to solve it are pretty pretty few and far between by examples, unfortunately. We're we're down to a couple of minutes. Uh, you know, I think the uh, the issue with net energy billing is is a question of in, balancing incentives versus fairness. Um, and I think uh, the uh, the tendency is for regulators or legislators to go all whole hog one way or the other, rather than a balance. And so I don't know exactly what the answer is, but I'm big on incentives myself. I think that's just the right thing to do. And there is there is a, the issue of interconnectedness in the grid. Uh, to me, there is an issue here, and, and see if we can squeeze this in in the, in the two minutes remaining. Uh, the, the, the big industrial scale grid uh, arrays that we see around the state, which were intended to be built on, on uh, closed landfills, um, the fact that they're building one on the interchange in Augusta is, I totally celebrate, even though there's been some pushback in the media about that. Uh, those arrays are the typical American way of doing something big and centralized and putting pushing electricity out onto the grid, uh, which is a an ISO New England management problem, I suppose, compared to rooftop solar, where you're actually using much of it before it goes to the grid, which actually lowers demand on the grid. Would you agree that those are two different scenarios and we should be looking at them differently, even though they're both PV? Uh, I would. And I would also, uh, what, what you say is that uh, um, when it's on a rooftop, it doesn't need to use the distribution grid. So the distribution grid isn't doesn't need to be as expensive, let alone the transmission grid before that. So it, it's quite right. Um, I would also just say, Steve, that space is available. Those roofs are there. Exactly. Let's, exactly. And yes. let's be sure we do so equitably. All, all of what we're doing relates to decarbonization. And decarbonization has to be everybody. So equity has to have a, a seat at the table here. 
in these deliberations. Right. Well, we've uh, we've as usual here, and I'm not the least bit surprised in terms of uh, of how we know each other. We've only just uh, touched on a few things. So, uh, as I joked before we went on the air, uh, we'll have to have you back every month for the rest of the year, uh, so we can continue with these things. But uh, you've been listening to uh, Power for the People here on WERUFM 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, with guest Ken Colburn. Uh, and I think you have uh, understood that he is a very knowledgeable guy about energy issues. Uh, and he is, uh, serves on the board of Efficiency Maine, amongst other things. Uh, and Efficiency Maine appears on this program typically at least once a year to talk about their incentives. So Power for the People airs the fourth Wednesday in the public affairs time slot at 4 p.m. And so join us next time to learn more about energy topics, policies, technologies, solutions, and things that can save money in your life. Ken, thanks so much for being here. We need to connect again sometime soon. Thank you so much, Steve. Pleasure to join you.